Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discuss what Carl Jung called the decisive question, the need for a relationship with the infinite. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. decisive question for man is, is he related to something infinite or not? That is the telling question of his life. Only if we know that the thing which truly matters is the infinite, can we avoid fixing our interests upon futilities and upon all kinds of goals which are not of real importance. Now, if I were to boil down this quote from Jung, in order to extract the essence of what he's saying here, I'd say it like this. What matters most? What matters most? What are the central values by which our lives are oriented and against which we can measure the choices we make from day to day and even from moment to moment? This quote comes from Jung's autobiographical book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. As part of one of the later chapters in that book, a chapter titled On Life After Death, in which, as you might well imagine, Jung muses on ultimate matters. Things like life, death, meaning, and the nature of God. And in this quote, Jung frames the question in terms of a relationship with the infinite. And he suggests that when that relationship takes the proper proportion in our lives, so does everything else, including, most importantly, our sense of our own self. And this is echoed by the theologian Raymond Panikkar, who makes essentially the same point. And he says, without a direct link to the transcendent, we're just one member of a series, replaceable by any other individual of the same species. We lose our uniqueness, and with that, 
our dignity. But why should this be the case? Why is it that we need such a link to the transcendent, a relationship to the infinite? And what might this look like in an ordinary human life? Well, the issue here is about what we place at the center of our lives. For it's that central point that gives focus and orientation to living. And that center, in a sense, determines the horizon of what we are able to see, to feel, and to experience. In other words, that center, that thing that matters most, shapes the story we tell ourselves about life, the story that we live out in this life. It's our personal myth. And it's probably not too much to say that everything depends on the nature and quality of that story. The story we tell about life is also the story we tell about ourselves. The things that we set as central values, we do so because we hope and expect that they will give some value to our own being, that they will provide an adequate sense of meaning and worth to ourselves and to our life. So when for instance, that central value is something narrow, like material success. We're counting on something finite and ultimately unstable to be the source of our personal worth and meaning. Our sense of worth becomes tied to the ebb and flow of our financial situation, or even worse, to that of our neighbor's financial situation. For we'll be likely to judge the size of our success in relation to theirs. If they have more, we have less. If they have less, we have more. Now, my, my point here is, it's not that money is not important or that we shouldn't care about our financial lives. All of that has its proper place. Rather, the point is that as a central value, it doesn't offer us a very firm foundation. We might say that it's, it's too small of a story to provide enough room for us for the living out of our full potential, all that we can be. And the same could be said for many of the things that the contemporary world sets up as having primary value. Things like perpetual youth and social status, consumerism, entertainment. When such finite concerns make up our center of value and meaning, 
our own worth, which is in large part borrowed from them, likewise becomes finite and limited. We are, in a word, diminished by them. As Panikkar says, we lose our uniqueness and with that, our dignity. A relationship to the infinite, on the other hand, means that our lives are infused with the infinite. We are not diminished, but ennobled. The values by which we're guided are not the fleeting and shifting values of the fashion of the moment, but ultimate values, lasting values. Now, of course, all this leaves us with the question of what exactly we mean by the infinite. What is it? And how can we come into relationship with it? Well, first, let me say that, as you might imagine, it's not possible to define the infinite. And I certainly wouldn't dare to make the attempt here. Words and concepts are finite. So how could they encompass the experience of the infinite? But I will say this, there are those to whom we can turn, those who have experienced some aspect of this relationship to the infinite, the link to transcendence in their own lives and their own work. And they've left us clues about the experience. These are the artists and poets the mystics and the scientists and philosophers. And one of the major clues that they give us is that the infinite is not some realm separate or divorced from everyday life. It is, in fact, an aspect of this life, the life within life, so to speak. It's what we see teaches Abraham Joshua Heschel when we're able to see through and behind our concepts and ideas to what he calls an authentic awareness of that which is. And William James, the great American philosopher, speaks of the need to turn away from the surface glamour of existence to become, as he says, heedless of the buzzing and jigging and vibration of small interests and excitements that form the tissue of our ordinary consciousness, and to give attention to the profounder base note of life. And this close relationship between the finite and the infinite, between the imminent and the transcendent is expressed in many religious traditions, in well-known sayings that point to the ultimate unity between the realm of becoming, the finite, 
and that of being the infinite. And so, for instance, in Buddhism, we hear that samsara is nirvana. Samsara points to the realm of becoming and to the material world. Well, nirvana refers to the transcendent state of enlightenment. And in Hinduism, it's expressed in the formula Atman is Brahman, with Atman expressing something like the individual soul and Brahman, the world or cosmic soul. And in Christianity, this relationship is expressed in the words of Jesus when he says that the kingdom of heaven is within you. In other words, what all of these images communicate is that a relationship with the infinite is available to us in all that we do and experience here and now. If only we had the eyes to see it. The infinite is not relegated to some distant and inaccessible realm. It's right here. And a key to achieving this insight for ourselves, according to Evelyn Underhill, can be found in the experience of the mystics of all the great religious traditions. Now, Underhill was an early 20th century writer who wrote extensively on religious subjects, most frequently on mysticism. And her understanding of the relationship between the spiritual and the psychological, as well as of the symbolic nature of religious images, prompted one author to describe her as a forerunner of C.G. Jung. And Underhill believed that in the experience of the mystics could be found lessons for all of us, no matter how unmystical we ourselves may be, for how to strengthen the awareness of and the relationship to the infinite. So here in her moving and poetic prose, is how she describes it. I do not care whether the consciousness be that of artist or musician, striving to catch and fix some aspect of the heavenly light or music, and denying all other aspects of the world in order to devote themselves to this or of the humble servant of science, purging his intellect that he may look upon her secrets with innocence of eye. Whether the higher reality be perceived in the terms of religion, beauty, suffering, of human love, of goodness, or of truth. However widely these forms of transcendence may seem to differ, the mystic experience is the key to them all.
Now, the mystic experience that Underhill suggests here is key. It's not something supernatural or magical or even esoteric. It's an act of devotion and focus. It's a rigorous work, a call, she says elsewhere, to vigor rather than to comfort. So the work of the artist, she says, involves denying all other aspects of the world in order to devote themselves to their art. Likewise, the work of the scientist, who must purge the intellect to look upon nature's phenomena with what she calls innocence of eye. The artist and the scientist, she's claiming, partake of the same kind of focus, devotion, attention, as well as a sensitivity for the hidden depths of things, as does the mystic. And the emphasis she's making here is not so far from what we've described of the symbolic life throughout this podcast, expressed though it may be in somewhat different language. In this series, I've said that the symbolic life involves such things as a discipline of deep listening, the need for silence, a wrestling with wisdom, and an engagement of the heart. And I think Evelyn Underhill's description here points us to our takeaway with respect to Jung's decisive question about our relationship with the infinite. And it involves two main movements. The first, of course, is to identify what matters most. Of all the many possibilities and interests that seek a claim on our attention, which is the field of engagement that speaks most clearly to us, that calls to us? And the different factors that Underhill identifies are those ideals with which such an engagement takes place. And they're the same ideals that have been considered to be of central importance for human life for millennia, truth, beauty, goodness, and love. These are the traditional names for the ways through which the infinite is perceived in everyday life. Each of these forms of transcendence, as she calls them, can be expressed in a myriad of ways, as, for example, in the work of the artist or the scientist mentioned earlier, but also through such things as varied as, say, parenting, athletics, activism, and religion. What's essential here is not the specific field of activity, 
but the quality of consciousness with which it's performed. To bring our attention then to the presence of one or more of these ideals, these ultimate values, as we work with them in some form or another, is to infuse our work with a sense of the transcendent, of the infinite. And it's the work itself that is the relationship to the infinite. And that's the second movement, the work, the discipline, the dedication, the commitment. Through such commitment, a particular value becomes transformed into a central value. And it's through such commitment, whether it's expressed in one's work, in one's relationships, or in one's spiritual practice, that life takes on definition and specificity and meaning. And it's through such commitment that the living of life can become something like a work of art in its own right. And more than that, it can become something filled with a sense of purpose, something that feels like it really matters. Which, of course, it does. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have questions about anything you heard in the episode or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag DigitalYook. Finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored in this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available now from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.